One, two, three. Welcome to Three Song Stories, the podcast that creates biography using the songs that have touched our guests' lives. I'm Mike Canary. Thanks for listening. My guest this episode is Nathan Hill. He's a writer and author of the 2016 best-selling novel, The Knicks. He moved to Naples in 2006 from New York City to take a job as professor at FGCU. Did that till 2012, moved away for a couple of years, then got his book deal, so moved back to Naples to focus on his writing. Nathan grew up all over the Midwest, where his grandparents had worked as farmers. His family moved constantly as his father worked his way up through management at Kmart. When he agreed to do this show, it delighted me because I couldn't wait to see how a novelist, a literal professional teller of stories, would respond to this three-song stories concept. And seems like now I shall wait no more. Hey there, Nathan Hill. Hey there. Thanks for having me. Hey, thanks for being here. Um, so well, let's start with basics. What was the musical background of your childhood when you were growing up in the Midwest? Uh, music was music was the point of contention between um, between us kids and the parents. Oh, so okay. I have two I have two little sisters, um, and and uh, music wasn't on in the house all that much, to be honest. Um, I think I, I I suspect my dad was into music at some point in his life because he did have this old and really awesome like stereo and turntable mm-hmm. uh, system uh, that had like you know he had all these like three dog night records. But it's apparently sometime in 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 when I was a toddler, I ruined that thing by by accidentally turning the volume way too too loud. Oh, I, so you I, blew his sound I, system. I blew his sound system. I don't think he ever had the heart to. To replace it. So, so music wasn't on too much in the house, but whenever we would take a road trip, um, music would be our companion the entire time. Uh, and uh, and so, as you mentioned, we moved around a lot, and so we would always travel back to Iowa to see the family at least once or once once a year, sometimes twice a year. And so we'd make the eight-hour journey by car. You know, the three kids in the back, the parents in front, and uh, and of course the kids. We wanted to listen to good music, which at the time meant like Def Leppard, ACDC, Bon Jovi. What year? What what era would this? Oh, that would have been the you know mid mid eighties. Okay. You know, um, and my. My parents wanted to listen to what us kids thought was the terrible music, which meant you know Jim Croce, Simon Garfunkel, Bread. Um, they had this one cassette tape called "The Best of Bread" uh, <laughs> that we actually literally hid before uh, a road trip, so we wouldn't have to listen. I don't even think I know Bread. It. How did I miss Bread? Uh, they're, 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 uh, go listen to the song "Everything I Own." It's a very sweet ballad that now is just fused with nostalgia and warm feelings for me. But when you know when I was eight, I hated it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that was that was. The the you know it it wasn't really on in the house that much. My parents didn't play a musical instrument, but they encouraged us kids to. And so in, in the fourth or fifth grade, I started playing the trumpet, um, and I did that for a while until we moved to we moved we moved to rural Oklahoma when I was in eighth grade. And uh, the, the school that I attended was so small it didn't have a band. It couldn't support it. So my parents found a guy who was like studying jazz trumpet at like the local community college mm-hmm. to give me lessons. And in the first lesson, he said, OK, I'm going to teach you jazz. I said, OK. And so we put down some notes and he's like, OK, play these notes. And I played the notes and he's like, OK, now jazz it up a little. <laughs> <laughs> and I kind of looked at him like – 
What do you mean? He's like, I have no context. Yeah, for this and mystery. yeah, and he's like, just you know, don't don't play the notes, play around the notes. And so I, I took my my best eighth grade stab at it, and then he just kind of looked at me and he's like, okay, do that again, but just try to do it better. You know? <laughs> Sounds and, like he was a great teacher. Uh, I didn't. I thought I blamed myself at the time. Looking back on it, yes, you're right. He's a he was a terrible teacher. So I ended up giving up trumpet, never to return to it. But uh, um, but that, yeah, that was that was music in childhood. It was uh, it was a lot of car rides and uh, and and. My, my trumpet sometimes squealing occasionally. Were the car rides uh, power, musically powered by tapes or were you listening to the radio? Oh, it was tapes. Yeah, for gotcha. sure. It was always tapes. Um, uh, the, the country that we were driving through could not always be counted on to, to get good radio reception. If you uh, had to try to dig deep into your memory for like a first musical memory, can you think of something that would pop up from early on that is just one of those things that crystallized for you? Um, like way early, I'd say – like I remember Michael Jackson videos, hmm. you know, like I remember like watching these things and maybe it was like it was the thrill of doing something I don't think my mom wanted me to, you know, to do. So like I saw, I saw the thriller video and all these like dancing zombies with these like this like purple goo jelly coming out of their mouths, you know, yeah, <laughs> or yeah, like right. or beat it. You remember beat it? Oh, yeah. Um, and as a, as a kid kind of growing up in, in, in the Midwestern suburbs, I thought beat it was like some warning of a apocalyptic inner city, <laughs> you know, dystopia. <laughs> I could see that. I could see that. Um, but, uh, uh, so yeah, so I remember that. And then, and then of course there was my stadium rock phase in the eighties when I actually really did get into music in a big way. Um, and I, I, I fell in love with, you know, Def Leppard, ACDC, Bon Jovi, Motley Crue. Oh my goodness. I remember listening to Dr. Feelgood mm-hmm. by Motley Crue and listening to a, a one part very, very slowly because there was this rumor that if you listen to this one part in the, in that song backwards, you could hear the satanic messages. Uh, and, uh, that was, that was doing those days when like the worst things parents had to worry about was satanism which weirdly seems kind of quaint now doesn't it <laughs> uh, how times have changed yeah. so um so what is your favorite song to sing and does the answer to that question change if i add when nobody's around well i i have a terrible singing voice it's just awful i cannot carry a tune and so if i'm if i'm forced to sing out loud in front of people um, uh, I, I always, I always tend towards Bob Dylan, uh, because, you know, you can kind of get away with a lot with a Dylan song. <laughs> um, and most of those Dylan songs, like, you know, everybody wants to sing along with you. So you end up like being in a chorus anyway. So right. my, my, my awful lack of, it's, well, it's a place for you to hide your voice. Yeah, exactly. My lack of talent is, is camouflaged. Um, if nobody's around, what do I like to, li- what do I like to sing? Oh gosh. Um, I, I'd, I'd say, uh, I'd say I love I love you too. I love Bono. Um, uh, my wife and I get into fights about Bono. Um, she is she's not a Bono fan. She's not. She's a classically trained classical musician. You know, she she was a singer for a, a long time, and she uh, she doesn't like the growl in his voice. She's she always says he's going to injure himself singing that way, and I'm like, well, he's been doing it for a long time. And, so and far, so good. So far, so good. So if nobody's listening, I will sing you two songs because then she can't be pissed off. <laughs> what was the first music you owned? That was yours. The first music I owned was a CD, probably. Oh, no, no. It was a tape. It was the Beastie Boys, licensed to oh, Ill. Nice, yeah. nice. Um, uh, and uh, and I, I, I remember buying it because my – well, asking my dad to buy it for me. Yeah. And he did. 
not knowing what it was. And then he listened to me listening to it like through the bedroom door and he came in and he's like, is that that tape that I bought you? And I said, yeah. And he's like, you didn't tell me it was rap. And he immediately took it back to the oh, store. No. Yeah. He returned it? <laughs> he returned it. I was not allowed to own the Beastie Boys. Wow. <laughs> when you got up in, in the world as an individual human being, did you repurchase License to Ill? Or? Oh, I did. Of course. Yeah. And now, now, of course, I have like Spotify. So I guess I own all Beastie Boys right. technically. Do you have a favorite band? Uh, I, 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 I would probably say – oh, goodness. I would probably say Radiohead would be my, would be my favorite, although I'm, I'm awful. I've never actually even seen them live, so I, I'm, hardly, I'm hardly a good fan, I guess. Hmm. Uh, well, let's pivot from that uh, sentiment yeah. to your first song. Uh, what are we going to play? We're going to play Paranoid Android by – Radiohead from their amazing album, OK Computer. Do you want to uh, set this uh, song up with uh, some of a story, all of a story, or would you like to just hear the song and then come out of it with your story? I'll set it up a little bit. Um, uh, This came out almost 21 years ago, exactly, Mm -hmm. in May of 1997. Um, And uh, for for a little context, uh, I I had just started college. Um, I started... Uh, I went to the University of Iowa, um, and when I arrived there, I was I was majoring in biomedical engineering. Hmm. Yeah, it's a straight line right to novelist. Exactly. I had always been a writer. I'd always loved writing, and I'd I'd always been a reader. Um, but my parents uh, uh, were very very much thought that that was a horrible idea. Uh, that uh, that that you know, I was going to go to college. I was among the first in my family to do that, um, and uh, and they didn't want me to waste an opportunity like college on studying something like the arts. So they're like, "Why don't you study something that will make you a lot of money, and then you can try writing on the side?" And so I was under under that influence for a little while. Um, and when this song came out, when this album came out, um, I had just sort of made a sort of epiphany. Um, uh, I, I had been taking these creative writing classes at the University of Iowa, which turns out has a pretty good writing mm-hmm. program. Um, and I loved them. I, I didn't even know you could study creative writing. I didn't know that was an option. And so I started taking these classes. And uh, eventually, I was spending more time with th- with those classes than I, I was with my engineering studies. And I had a guidance counselor in engineering who told me, you have to stop taking these English classes or else you're not going to graduate on time. So I said, well, screw this. And I dumped engineering and, and picked up English and picked up creative writing. And so this this song came out about exactly that time when I was make, making this transition from the sciences into the arts and to pursue this somewhat kind of risky career, but also one that where, where my heart was really, really kind of dying to, to pursue it. All right. Well, this is Paranoid Android by Radiohead. It's Nathan Hill's first song on this episode of Three Song Stories. So what is it about that song that crystallized it into your memories during that time to the point that we're talking about it and listening to it today? Yeah, I remember when I first heard this this song. I remember being at the, at a party at the house of this guy who uh, who had really good musical taste, and he said that he, that, he, that he had to put this album on, and everybody's got to listen to it. Which, with this particular guy and his particular parties, usually was code for like, let's pretend there's a more noble reason for the drugs we're about to do. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> but but he put the album on and offered no drugs whatsoever, and we all just actually sat there sincerely listening soberly. To this the al- music album. was the drug. Yeah. yeah, and we were all like, "What? What in the world is this?" Um, uh, for a little, a, a little more context, um, uh, I, I had to look this up. But like, the number one song 
in the uh, on the Billboard Top 40, the the uh, the week that OK Computer dropped was Mbop by Hanson. Oh, that puts it into context. <laughs> yeah, um, other other artists on the chart that week. There was a lot of Spice Girls. Um, there was some Jewel. There was some Tony Braxton. There was some R. Kelly. Oh, there was some Jewel. Vogue. Yeah, I haven't thought of. Yeah, so like, um, uh, so then Radiohead comes into this, uh, and uh, I, I've read that that Radiohead studio dropped their sales estimates when they actually heard uh, the the album because OK Computer was nothing like anything that was popular at the moment. But um, but it was it's I mean as you just heard it's moody, it's atmospheric, it's layered. Um, I felt like the lyrics were like giving us news from the future, hmm. you know? Like and here we are. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. It's like a, this world. The whole the whole album is about this world of like technological isolation. And paranoia and social anxiety, and which turns out, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and but but also there was. Um I don't know. It, it lined up really well with my artistic mood at the time. I was a young man trying to be a real artist, um, and I was writing and trying to break free yeah. from, from engineering. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, but but at the same time, I was writing these like dark and grisly stories that I knew nothing about. I was ri- writing, you know, about you know horrible abuse and murder and and all these terrible things. And um, you know, I grew up very pleasant childhood in the suburbs. Like I, I don't know anything about that. Yeah, you weren't write what you know. Exactly. You were writing what you thought you should write. Exactly. And yeah. I. And, and but but this like this album and and this song it's so so dark and strange and mysterious it, it kind of felt like what I wanted to do and wasn't able yet to do. There's this Ira Glass is this great quote about how, about how artists of really any any discipline has to have, they all have to go through this phase where your your talent has to catch up with your taste, you know. And uh, and I, I knew mm. I knew that that Radiohead was doing something very special, but I couldn't quite do that yet. Hmm. I needed a lot more practice to kind of get there, but they 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 were like a a lighthouse on the on the horizon for me, if that makes sense. How are your parents today with your choice of the arts? It was really very selfishly pleasant for me to be able to ta- say um, I told you so <laughs> when I sold the book. Yeah, um, but but to be fair, they're they're really excited for me. I mean, they were they were proud. I mean, I I was I, I taught for a very long time. I was a professor, and and uh, and they were very. And that's they're, legitimate. Yeah, man. exactly, exactly. They're very proud of uh, very proud of me. And um, I worked in journalism for a long time before that. So um, I think they were worried that I'd I'd go into English and then move back into their basement, which never happened. So so it all turned out okay. Um, did you ever make mixtapes? I did. I did make mixtapes and then later mix CDs. Uh, uh, what was your process for the mixtapes? Was it for you? Was it for your friends? Was it for uh, potential interests? When I, when I first started doing it, it was almost like a performance piece. I would pretend that I was a radio disc jockey. Um, and I voicing would, and all, voicing and all, wow. and so I would like record myself doing the thing, and then I would introduce a song. That's and then a the first, song would by play. the way, in is these that, interviews. Is that so, right? Yeah. Um, and so, and then I just kept them. I didn't play them for anybody. They were just for me. You know, it was just pretend. Did but, you uh, play them for you? Yeah, I would play oh, okay. them for you me. At least would play them back yeah, once. Yeah, I just that'd be weird. Yeah, it would. <laughs> <laughs> Somewhere there's a box of like yeah, me doing this. I'll listen to. <laughs> Did, uh, did anybody ever make you a mixtape? Huh. I don't. I don't think so. I know that when I was when I was wooing the uh, the woman who is now my wife, I did make her several mix CDs, um, uh, and uh, and and that was really great. Um, and 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 hopefully helpful. Uh, she, uh, like I said, she's a classical musician, and so um, she that that whole time in college where you kind of you know listen to a lot of popular, maybe not so popular music. She was 
she was in a studio practicing, so she kind of missed all that. So I was like filling her in. Huh. This is what happened in music for the last eight years. Any uh, any songs you can remember from those CDs that you made for? You know, it's like Whitney Houston. Oh well, no, this was this was later. This was uh, this was around early two thousand. You still and, could have been listening. And and, and I well, you know what? I, this will be another perfect segue because one of the songs was New York, New York by Ryan Adams. Oh really? Yeah, it was. Well, I was going to ask you a few more questions. <laughs> before it's we get to that. too be- perfect. I had to do get, it. Before we get to that, okay. which we will get to in a second, let's okay. talk about um, uh, the song that almost made your list, the fourth song. Was there a fourth was, were you, or was it easy to identify three? What was close? Uh, um, there's this song that I saw – uh, when all right, so so sometimes um, after after concerts down at the Philharmonic in Naples, sometimes a lot of the musicians will go bowling. Uh, oh, yeah, and uh, it's just a you know, there you have it. Let off some steam, um, go bowling, and so I, I go. I'll, I'll go bowling with them, and uh, and one night, you know, it's 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 like midnight in the bowling alley. It's like neon lights and music videos playing above all the alleys, and uh, one night this mu- music video came on. And we we were all just sort of transfixed, and and the song was called "Bass Down Low" by Dev. It's not a very popular song. Um, I encourage everybody to listen to it because I challenge you to tell me what it's about. <laughs> like I really have no idea. It's a song that has a really ambiguous relationship with meaning, uh, but it's it's just it seems to be about a purposefully woman. Purposefully so, yeah, or did somebody miss be, the mark? Yeah, no, it seems to be like this woman sort of seems to like bass. But like, is bass for code? Like, code for something? Like, you know, like Megan Trainer? I, I don't, I don't know. Uh, it's just she seems to like her bass down low, and I'm not sure what that means. Maybe it means something. I'm just too old to know. But we all just loved it so much, and it's got such a kind of goofy music video that we started playing it at first, ironically, all the time, and then we slowly, being you and your wife, me and my wife, and all of our friends. Okay. And then slowly we started playing anthem. it, <laughs> playing it unironically, playing it sincerely. And then it started showing up, like, and then we all, you know, we all got married, and it, it played at every one of our weddings, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and like eventually, you know, like at a wedding, the crowd filters out, and it's just like the good friends who are yeah, left, yeah, and, the core and that's, is left. That's when everybody would play bass down low, and all we would all reenact that night from the bowling alley when after a pitcher or two of cheap beer, we all danced to this weird song. When was the last time you listened to it with people? Oh, or goodness. just in general. Uh, with people, I have no idea. Probably the last wedding, which was now um, about a year and a half ago. Okay. Well, now let's get back to the perfect segue that you set up before. Oh, okay. Yeah. So we're going to hear this is uh, New York, New York by Ryan Adams. Um, do you want to talk about it first? Do you want to listen to it first? Do you choose? Uh, I'll, I'll set it up a little bit. So this is um, – it's 2001 now when this when this song comes out. It, it was released on his album Gold. Um, and I have just moved to the East Coast. Um, I, uh, I spent uh, several years in Iowa City. Uh, um, after I graduated, I worked as a newspaper reporter for a few years. Um, but I always knew that I wanted to be a, a, a fiction writer. And so I decided to apply to MFA programs in creative writing. And um, I only applied to East Coast and West Coast schools. I lived in the Midwest. You were my done with the life. middle. I, I love it there, but I just wanted to see something new. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, and uh, and I got into to the University of Massachusetts Amherst, um, and uh, I started in September two thousand one, which is exactly when this album came out. Um, so this is sort of um, it's funny. Like when I was growing up, music was. Um, 
Oh gosh, I listen to what everybody else listened to. You know, right. um, the 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 you know Bon Jovi uh, in the eighties or in the nineties. I was a big fan of the alternative stuff that all the angsty teens were into: Pearl Jam, Nirvana. You know, the plaid. Um, yeah, exactly. You know, a lot of flannel and combat <laughs> boots. Um, so I listened to what everybody else listened to, and um, and I I I moved to the East Coast um, in two thousand one, and suddenly I was with very artsy people who spent quality time in Brooklyn, um, and suddenly I realized that music wasn't really about group cohesion anymore it was yeah. a, it was it was about like individuation yeah. you know it was about like proving your bona fides uh because you listen to the right bands um and uh and so um one of the bands that that people listened to at that time was this guy Ryan Adams. But of course, you couldn't like Ryan Adams now. You had to like him way back yes. when he was the Too lead singer of Whiskey Town, <laughs> because that's the only way you were actually an authentic fan. Uh, so I had I felt like I had some catching up to do. So I started listening to all the all the acts that seemed to have you know credibility with the tastemakers I was suddenly surrounded by, and, and so Ryan Adams was one of them. All right. Well, this is uh, New York, New York by Ryan Adams. You're listening to Three Song Stories. It's biography through music. How much time had you spent in the Northeast and in New York City in particular prior to moving up there? Very, very little. Uh, I had an internship in Connecticut uh, the year before my last year in college. It was an unpaid summer gig writing for a, a magazine, an environmental magazine. Um, and I, I took the train. My first week there, I took the train down to New York City and it was the first time I'd ever been there. Um, I had a love affair with New York City from afar for a very long time. I hadn't smelled it yet though. No, no, I hadn't. You know, the uh, – yeah, the, the <laughs> The 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 uh, the burning peanut vendors, you know? <laughs> and the, the sulfur from the from the uh, from the grates where the the, the subways uh, are running. Yeah, I um I I don't know. It was it was one of those things. Like you know, I, I kind of grew up wanting to be a writer, and um and yeah, I don't know. Uh, maybe I I read too much. You know. Jack Kerouac or Truman Capote, but uh, but I just thought moving to New York City is the thing that young writers need to do, you know, uh, and uh, and so and so yeah, so I I moved out to 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 the Northeast to to go to UMass in in, uh, in the autumn of uh, two thousand and one, um, and that's when this song came out. So it always reminds me of that moment, autumn um, of two thousand one. So that's right around exactly, yeah. yeah. So weirdly, the music video for this song features the World Trade Center very prominently and that music video came out the morning of September 11, 2001. It's just a weird coincidence. Yeah. Um, And and, and I understand that that Ryan Adams stopped playing this song for a while because it was all – Tied kind of together, tied yeah. up with uh, with with nine eleven, but it also co- uh, also kind of caught that love affair that happened to New York City in the in the in the year years after nine eleven. So so of course I have that association with it, and 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 um, and I was in school for what maybe two or three weeks before nine eleven happened, and you know I was still I still had ties to journal you know journalism outlets back in Iowa. My my old newspaper editor asked me, "Will you go to New York City and write a story? Just what do you see? Try to find some Iowans." And so I did. So, you know, the Tuesday after 9-11, um, uh, I, no, no, 9-11 happened on a Tuesday. I mean the Thursday after 9-11. Um, uh, I think I'm right about that. Please don't check if, if you're listening to this. <laughs> we're not, um, we're, we try to be fact-based, yeah, but we're yeah, not yeah. too hung it's, up on it. You know, it's, it's been a long time. But anyway, the, the, the point is a few days after 9-11, I, I took the train into the city and walked around. And it was just so – it was so emotional and so heartbreaking um, and, um, and wrote my story. 
so that's the that's the sad association I have with this song. But but I also have a very happy association with this song too because for the next year or so that I was in I was at UMass. I mean, we would go down into into Manhattan all the time. We'd yeah. go to New York all the time. And then the places that he sings about in this song, you know, like uh, dive bars in the Lower East Side, that was my life, you know, during this time. I was going to readings at the KGB bar in Lower Manhattan and then going into Alphabet City to drink really cheap PBR with my friends, you know. And this this was this you, was You were life. a hipster before they were cool. <laughs> I don't know. If, I, don't, I don't know. I was following hipsters, you know. I, I had friends who were hipsters and right. I, 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 I was in their circle because I was in their, their, their writing classroom. Um, and and uh, and and that was I don't know it, it it had never felt so proximate to me you know and um, and so this song which is just a love letter to New York City um, really captures kind of what I felt at that time which is this is for me you know that I'd been dreaming about the city you know growing up um, and uh, and finally I was here and and I was like you know as soon as I'm as soon as I'm done with with school this is where I'm going to end up so um, when did you uh, you mentioned that. This song wound up on a mix CD you made for your wife or mm-hmm. your future wife or kind of tie that together. When did you meet her? How much longer after this song and why, you know? We, yeah, we started dating uh, when I was in grad school. Um, so I think um, after my first – beginning of my second year of grad school, uh, we started dating. Um, so that would have been 2002. Uh, and um, and she had uh, just gotten a job uh, uh, down here uh, with the Naples Philharmonic. Um, and so we were long distance for a very long time. I would come down to Naples. She would uh, come up to uh, to, to, to Amherst. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so it was around that time uh, that uh, that I, I, made, I made those – those mixed CDs for her. We were very new. We were wooing each other. Mm-hmm. I was like, look how cool I am. Here's all my good, you know, my, my great taste in music that you don't know, you know, so that was part of that. Um, uh, and of course, we had talked about me moving down to Naples or her, her moving up to New York City uh, um, after I graduated from, from grad school. Um, and uh, and I, I decided that I needed, to, I needed to have that New York experience. You know, I, I, I didn't want to move to Naples immediately. So, um, so I, yeah, so I ended up moving to New York. And so, so we were, we were away from each other. We were in long distance for what four years wow. uh, before we ever lived in the same place. You uh, you probably get to go to New York quite a bit these days, right? I the, mean, yeah, these days I do. Yeah, um, uh, whether it's uh, you know meeting with my with my editor or just visiting friends. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm living the life. <laughs> So uh, musically today, where are you at? What do you listen to? Do you um, just stream? Do you listen to the radio? Like what's your musical stylings today? It's – you know, I um – it's 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 quite it's quite boring, honestly. Um, you know, I have I have my Spotify account, and it, and and I'll just kind of listen to what it what it tells me to. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's uh, it, it's 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 funny. I in some ways I appreciate that because I, I get all this I, I hear all these new songs um, but in another way I, I sort of miss the days where you had to like buy an album and then you just listen to the album start to finish mm-hmm. you know, with Spotify I never do that you know I, I, I sample I dive in and dive out um, uh, it makes mixtapes for me you yeah, know yeah. Um, but it's just algorithms it's not an actual human trying to woo me you know it just it feels less cold, uh, less warm at least it feels more cold you know I, it's not a perfect uh, you know, analogy or c- comparison but it's interesting that you say that because because you know, I don't know if artists think to make or musicians think to make you know arcs of albums as much anymore because of the way we consume music, and it would almost be like selling a novel by chapter. Yeah, I, well, well, you can you you know you're able to dive in and out of an album, I suppose, but uh, and not lose too much of the context. But there, you know, there are certain albums that I think. 
you know, do work as a as a as a whole. I think of like you know Beyonce's Lemonade. You know, I think uh, is one of those like it's a, it's an event in itself. You know, I think even even uh, what was that Taylor Swift concept album, nineteen eighty nine? Is that what that was, was called? Uh, I, you've gone beyond <laughs> my depth of knowledge. But it was this. It, it was her 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 album before her latest album, and uh, and it was this kind of interesting exercise in like modernizing a sort of eighty um, style of of album. You know, so so I think you have to go really concept, you know, to to have an an entire album that's worth listening to in its totality. Otherwise, yeah, people kind of come in and out uh, via Spotify or iTunes or what have you. Uh, do you have a band that you like um, that you think the listeners would never have heard of? Do you have anything that's sort of an off-the-beaten-path choice in music? There's this band called the Budos Band that I just started listening to and it's, it's just kind of um, – it's just like a lot of like – Big drum beats and baritone saxophones. Hmm. You know, yeah, it's Budos, Budos, B U D O S, B U D O S. Yeah. and there's, there's no there's no lyrics. It's just like this hard driving beat. Um, but it, it, it but it sounds like I don't know. It's uh, it sounds like it's it, it has you know a lot of a lot of influences. Music from, uh, from Mexico and Africa seem to be blended in together with this like really uh, kind of incredible. Um, Incredible um, horn section, and it's 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 just very cool. Uh, I wish How'd I you find it? Um, Spotify. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, maybe there is somebody out yes, there curating. Maybe, for you. maybe. Thank you, Spotify. Uh, do you listen to music when you're writing? I listen to music that does not have lyrics. So I'm something writing. like that would be something you might put on. Well, that's a, that's actually a little too hard. Uh, I'm I you know I'm, I really I, I tend to restrict myself to um, kind of light piano solos mostly. Um, or Yo-Yo Ma is a good choice, like when he's playing uh, you know the, 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 you know uh, cello like Bach cello suites you know. Um, but uh, but yeah, can't have music. It's uh, even even opera. Even if the or, sorry, I can't have lyrics. Even opera. Even if the lyrics are in a foreign language. That's it, still. You know, yeah, it's it's distracting. I need I need the language to be my own, um, but I do I do like to 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 fill the room with something quiet and relaxing and and um, but but also um, engaging and complex. Hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, let's uh, let's turn to your third song. Um, what do you have for us? I have, and this is an this is an odd selection, maybe, but my you'll understand when I tell the story why I chose it. Um, Violin Concerto Number One in G Major by Max Bruch. Um, this is uh, his Brooks most famous and actually probably only famous work. Uh, Max Bruch was a uh, was a composer in Germany, um, uh, kind of turn of the century, late eighteen hundreds, and uh, he um, he was the author of nearly a hundred pieces of music, three symphonies, three operas, uh, um, sixteen concertos. You know, uh, but this is the. Uh, uh, the work that everybody remembers him by. And this is really the only work that's still played by Max Brook is this violin concerto. Um, but it's played a lot. Uh, a, a few years ago, um, there's this, this radio station called Classic FM in London. And, uh, and they did, a, they did a, a, a top 300 Hall of Fame um, uh, countdown style thing over, over Easter weekend. Um, and they asked their listeners to vote on their favorite classical pieces. And Max Brook came in number one and number 300 with oh, wow. nothing in between. <laughs> number one was this piece we're about to listen – we're going to listen to, um, the Violin Concerto number one. Um, number 300 was the Col Nidre uh, and he had nothing in between. So it's like he's like the only composer out there who's incredibly celebrated for just one thing and this is it. All right. And this is the version you – who was it you said? The soloist here is uh, Joshua Bell. Um, who's a, just a just a brilliant violinist? 
Okay, well, let's hear it. Uh, This is uh, Three Song Stories, Biography Through Music. So what's the story behind that one? (sighs) Well, so... As you can hear from from the, the first movement there, uh, Brooke is, is is writing a very kind of romantic, very beautiful sounding concerto. You know, it's very it's very luscious. It's very um, uh, it's it stands in in pretty stark contrast to some of the other things that were going on when when he was writing. When uh, was that? Th- this was in the oh goodness, when did he write it? Eighteen sixties, I think. Okay. I want to say um, uh, uh, he was in Germany at the time. Brooke was the anti Wagner. Wagner was uh, was writing these uh, these pieces that were you know Wagnerian you know and and you know uh, very aggressive sounds you know um, as opposed to the very kind of light touch of of Brook and Brook is kind of looking backwards at a more romantic kind of style of writing um, inherited from say Beethoven um, and and Wagner is looking ahead to a different style of writing that that ultimately finds its sort of genesis in, in someone like you know atonal stuff of like Schoenberg, you know, which must have made made Brooks' ears bleed, you know. So he's he's very much a traditionalist. He's very much a, a, a kind of um, musically conservative in that way, um, and uh, and he. He longed to write something that was just gorgeous, that was just beautiful, that was timeless in its in its beauty. I mean, he wasn't interested in the fireworks of Wagner or Schoenberg. He wanted something that's that's traditionally beautiful, um, and he did it. I mean, this that's it. The, 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 for my money, those opening lines from the violin are some of the most gorgeous music ever written. Um, and uh, the, the problem is that uh, he did it his first time out. And you know, it's, it's his concerto number one. Yeah. Um, and then he had a whole career, and people kept asking him for concerto number one. And yeah. violinists would continue to want to play one hit wonder before they were cool. Yeah, exactly. So uh, even into the early 1900s. Um, uh, uh, he would he he wrote letters to to to, to some of his friends and and I brought it brought in a quote because I thought it was hilarious. He wrote <laughs> he wrote in uh, let me see I think this is 1903. He wrote nothing compares to the laziness, stupidity, and dullness of German violinists. Every fortnight another one comes to me wanting to play the first concerto. I have now become rude and have told them I cannot listen to that concerto anymore. Did I just write the one? Go away and play the other concertos which are just as good if not better. <laughs> but nobody. <laughs> agreed with him on that point. Everybody thought the first concerto. You have no control over it yes. once you release it to the wild. Yes, and so and and the and the real tragedy of the whole thing is that he never even made any money from it. I mean, it was his his first one, and he um, he sold it for a small one time fee to a publishing house that made a fortune uh, selling the rights to it all over the world. He eventually um, uh, sold the manuscript, the original handwritten manuscript, to um, a, a couple American sisters, piano playing sisters, who insisted they were going to take it back to New York and sell it um, and he never heard from them again and died um, and uh, and uh, eventually the the manuscript turned up in an auction uh, from the estate of uh, who was it um, um, Mary Flagler Carey who's the the heir to the standard oil fortune mm. and can now be found um, at a museum in New York City at the um, uh, the, the, the the Morgan library um, 
So he never made any money from it and uh, and and ultimately hated it, even though it it represented the pinnacle of what he wanted to do in his career. Now, how this connects, I'm, 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 this is the I long way. Oh, I trust this you. This is the long way Nathan, around. I trust you on this. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I moved to New York City after grad school, as as I had always dreamed to do. Um, it was uh, 2004, and I moved there. Um, and my first month in the city, um, uh, I, uh, I was living in this apartment in Queens, looking for a more permanent apartment. Um, and uh, and I had found one at the. Uh, I found a more permanent apartment, and at the end of the month, I had this awkward day where I had to have all of my stuff out of my sublet in Queens uh, in the morning. But I couldn't move into my new apartment until the evening, so I put everything in my car and went to work and came back, and the car was empty. Um, everything had been stolen so all of my all of my clothes all of my books and my computer on which everything that i had written in grad school had been saved um and uh and also you know all the cd's that i had backed up the computer on so mm-hmm. like i i had i had packed them stupidly right next to the computer and you had no um archive no and the, and the cloud didn't exist yeah, back yeah. then so so here i was uh Dreaming to move to New York City my entire life to become a writer and suddenly this happens. I lose everything including all of my writing. You know, it was devastating, you know. Um, the the um, uh, And there's a real direct line uh, between that moment and, and, and me writing The Knicks um, uh, because uh, I had been working on a novel, uh, in, you know, um, uh, well, at least a manuscript. I'm not sure if it would have been a novel but uh, I had been working on a manuscript um, and I just couldn't – I couldn't keep working on it. It was too sad. Uh, and so I, uh, I started a new piece um, and it ended up being The Knicks. And one of the through lines in The Knicks is this, this, this story, this old – folklore uh, tale from from Norway, which is where I got my title. Um, a Nix is, uh, in, in the Norwegian version of the telling, a Nix is a, a kind of water spirit um, that will appear to young children as a, as a white horse and tempt them to climb aboard. And if they do, it will run them into the water and drown them. And it's kind of a kind of a story about like be careful what you wish for, you know. Um, for the kids, they must have been ecstatic at seeing their, their having suddenly their own horse. But then, of course, tragedy strikes, mm-hmm. and the, the, the moral kind of seemed to me that sometimes the things you want the most can also hurt you the worst. Uh, and um, and so all of my characters are going through that because I went through that, you know. Uh, the, the what I wanted the most in the world was to move to New York City and become a writer, and that was a disaster, you know. Um, all of my writing was was stolen, and um, and, and it turned out like I, I, uh, New York City was extraordinarily hard to live in, especially at the time I was writing. I was I was working at a poetry nonprofit, so you can imagine what oh, my yeah, salary that, was. Yeah, that, that doesn't <laughs> jive with. Uh, yeah, you got to go way out of the city to live on that. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. So it was really, really difficult to make a living. Um, it wasn't exactly what I had expected, and, and this awful thing had happened. New York was my nicks. You know, it was this this thing that I had my eye on for a long time that ended up. Um, being punishing when it actually happened, and for Max Brook, this concerto was his. You know, uh, this was uh, the thing that he had always wanted to accomplish, and then once he did, it was a disaster, unexpectedly, accidentally. Um, and so I ended up putting this piece in the novel. In the novel, there's uh, a young uh, violin prodigy who plays who plays a concerto, and this is the piece she plays. You know, I read your novel, and I knew there was a violin prodigy in it, 
and I knew she played a song, and I imagined it in my head when I read the novel, but it wasn't until right now that I realized that that was it. <laughs> yep, it's, it was this song. Um, and, I, you know, I don't mention in the novel the whole story behind the song, mm-hmm. the whole kind of one-hit wonder aspect of it. It's just wow, one of those... that's good. That's good. It's just Layers, one of those... Man, yeah, nice. it's just one of those Easter eggs <laughs> that if anybody cared to do a little research, they would they would maybe 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 see the connection or, or, or listen to this podcast, and, and I'll just do it for you. Uh, when did classical music come along in your life? It sounds like, you know, your arc wasn't really heading toward classical, but, you know, in, in 2001, anyway, had classical entered your life then, or is it because of your wife? It was only because of my wife, yeah, yeah, she, um, uh, she introduced me, um, and, uh, and she introduced me to it at the time when I was, I was in grad school, um, and I was really thinking about, I was thinking about, you know, plot development, I was thinking about story, I was thinking about through line and theme, um, and she was able to talk about all those things, but from a musical point of view, which was really very interesting. How does a composer take a theme and then develop it in the first movement and the second movement and the third movement how do these how does this musical material come back you know um, that's thinking about it musically is actually really helpful for a novelist because if you're writing if you're writing something that's long and my, my, my novel is very long uh, you, you can't you can't you kind of can't pull the same moves over and over you really have to make a dynamic you have to really switch it around and and what she was able to tell me about music in terms of you know um, uh, dynamic range about going Going, going loud to soft, loud to soft. About uh, about refusing to um, end um, uh, end uh, end a phrase where you, where the, the the listener thinks you're going to end it. About creating suspense within measures. That was really helpful for a writer. Absolutely. Um, and and so I I started listening to a lot of classical music. Not only because she told me to, but also I found it very very helpful for my own development um, in my craft. What what uh, instrument does she play? She plays the bassoon. And she's been with the symphony for 15 years yes, or something, Yes, she has. Yeah, said. that's wow. right. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Um, we only have a few minutes left, but uh, let's talk about live music. Do you have a live music experience that is your, you know, your pinnacle at this point in life? Is there something or just the one that you loved the most that you remember best? <laughs> I, I do. I have one. Um, I was maybe a sophomore in high school and my friends and I, I was living in Wichita, Kansas and my friends and I, we got tickets to a Pearl Jam concert, and it was the day before Thanksgiving. So we all showed up in our long hair and flannels and combat boots, you know, and we go to the Pearl Jam concert. This, incidentally, was the first and only time I've ever crowd surfed oh. at a concert. Uh, I noticed all these people near the mosh pit uh, <laughs> because there was a mosh pit um, uh, would uh, would turn to the person behind them and kind of give them a thumbs up gesture, and then and then that person would kind of boost them onto the crowd and then the crowd would lift you up, you know, and uh, and carry you for a little while until they stop being interested in that and then you just kind of fall on your tailbone. Um and so I did that, which was which was thrilling. Um and uh, and 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 at some point in the concert, Eddie Vedder, the lead singer of Pearl Jam stops and he's just like he's so cool, you know, he's up there. He's just like, you know, tomorrow you're all going to go have Christmas or not Christmas. You're all going to have Thanksgiving dinner with your family and we're all like boo and he says yeah tell them i said to you know, screw you too or something like that and we all cheered and i cheered and i was like i was really into the moment even though i was really actually looking forward to thanksgiving <laughs> <laughs> thanksgiving dinner i really like thanksgiving dinner and and you know the i but but like 
in the moment. You know, there's just something about like just being really angry for some reason that was delicious. You know, yeah, and so yeah. so I was just I was booing just and cheering just uh, just with everybody else, and it was fantastic. Hmm. Um, if you had to listen to only one album henceforth, what would it be? Like the whole I'm on an island and I only have yeah. one album. Yeah. Um, I think it's probably a tie between the aforementioned um, OK Computer mm-hmm. and probably the White Album, The Beatles. Mm. Yeah, that's a great. That's there's uh, talk about variety. Talk about you know dynamic range, going soft aloud to soft aloud. You know that's that's a that's a great one. You know I think we've we've recorded like eleven of these now, and I think that. The Beatles have made it into every one. Is that and right? You just snuck it in. Yeah, just barely, <laughs> just under the wire. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, uh, uh, any final thoughts? No, thank you so much. This has been really, really, um, really fun. Has anybody asked you a question? Uh, not yet. What's all right? So, so, in, so, take us out. Um, uh, what's your? Uh, um, if you're if you're you know home alone and you want to sing along to a song, what would it be? Um, um, uh, the drinking song by Moxie Fruis. Oh, can you sing a bar to take us out? No. <laughs> <laughs> I tried, folks. I really tried. And the band played on. Okay, that's as far as we get. Uh, okay, I want to thank my guest, Nathan Hill, Naples resident and author of The Knicks, which I highly recommend. I might have to reread it now that you've explained that. Uh, Nathan, thanks so much for doing this. It's been a real treat. Yeah, thank you. We make three song stories in the studios of WGCU Public Radio on the campus of Florida Gulf Coast University. The show is produced, directed, and co-created by Richard Chen Kui. Our online content producers are Tara Callaghan and Anna Bejarano. Our executive producer is Chris Duffus. Our theme music was created by Dave 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 Cowan and Stick Martin at Monkey House Studio in St. Pete. Before this week's parting tune, I want to ask listeners to send us your best song story. Just record your story about a particular song onto your phone and send the recording to mystory at threesongstories.org. We're going to be picking some favorites and start using them as parting tunes at some point in the not-so-distant future. But this week, my parting tune is from Bob Dylan. I came to Dylan relatively late in life, not till I was in my late 20s. My girlfriend at the time, Elise, was a big fan, and we spent a lot of time lounging around high on life and potentially a few other things, listening to his discography. It was glorious times. His album, Blood on the Tracks, rose to the top of my list of favorites. I love every single track on that album, but today we're going to hear track number one. This is Tangled Up in Blue by Bob Dylan from his 1975 album, Blood on the Tracks. I'm Mike Canary. Keep listening. Next time on Three Song Stories. I could be driving, he'd be in the back seat, in the, in the, in the baby seat, and I'd turn the song on, and I'd see his head bopping. If they played this song and it came over the intercom at Publix, he was going to dance. <laughs>